Hi, I'm Tasha Weeks. And I'm Kelly Guyton. Welcome to Culturally Yours Mental Health. We will discuss all things mental health for people of color. Let's create our own narratives for our own experiences that affect us mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Be informed. Be supported. Be empowered. Welcome back to Culture Yours Mental Health. Um, I'm very excited today because we are having our first roundtable discussion, um, and we have three guests with here with us today. Um, would you guys like to introduce yourselves? Yes. <laughs> uh, so good morning, everybody. My name is Astasia, um, or I can go by Stash. Um, I am a family nurse practitioner. Uh, I work in the maternal and child health realm. Um, I deal with uh, women of color that are going through pregnancy and uh, really trying to help with reducing the health disparities among women of color, particularly African-American women in the Prince George's County area. Um, I'm also a mother myself, so I'm a mom of three to be. I have two children, a teenager, a preteen, and then one on the way. So thank you for letting me join you guys today. I'm Rich. Um, I'm currently a real estate uh, investor in the Tennessee Chattanooga area. And um, previously, I have experience as a high school math teacher where I taught algebra in um, black and brown communities. Um, my goal now is to kind of redevelop black neighborhoods and bring them up to uh, in a comfortable space, especially like some of our hoods in the Chattanooga area to a place where people want to live and feel comfortable and feel safe. I am Tiana. I am a business owner of Sacred Trusts and a mom of two little ones, uh, almost two and six months old. Um, with my business, I really focus on the mental health uh, status of women and how self-care and your hair um, plays a really big role in your self-care in the routine of it all. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Uh, we really appreciate it, Kelly and I. Uh, we thought that this would be like a great opportunity to wrap up the season because we talked about so many different things and we wanted to make sure we have that that real dialogue um, that we want people to have about some of the topics that we discussed this season. Yes. And one of those topics, um, as you guys recall from the first episode, was about marginalization. OK. And so just to kind of recap, you know, the word marginalization um, was used to mean to relegate, to basically put someone on the outside or as someone that's unimportant or, power, or in a powerless position within society or a group. So casting aside of groups that are considered other within a society. Um, so we would like to hear it that if you were marginalized, can you tell us about the most impactful experience of being marginalized um, was like for you? And if you've not experienced or believe that you have not been marginalized, tell us why. For me, I think about uh, marginalization. I'm thinking about my experience from going to high school to college. Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, that was a weird space because I remember being put in a position where like only the CUNY schools or the SUNY schools were something that I should shoot for and not necessarily going for any of the more prestigious schools or more reputable schools that were out there. 
And I just remember sometimes like those high school advisors will tell you like, hey, like you, you may be shooting too far. Mm-hmm. And then like as now, like as you're an adult and, you know, you see the opportunities that you could have taken, um, but you felt limited and not being able to take those opportunities at the time. And that might just be also from being marginalized for so long that you also put yourself in this mental space of feeling marginalized and you never really exit that. So you never think anything is for you, even if there's an opportunity there. However, I do feel like there are spaces where like marginalized groups get opportunities to be in a space where there's opportunities for marginalized people. But then like I think about things like the 10 year student loan forgiveness plan for people that work in nonprofit organizations and for you to actually qualify and actually receive that you have to actually make 120 payments on time, which kind of feels like something that you have to do and you don't feel safe in that space. So you almost never feel like you're going to qualify for that, right? As a teacher, one, I never applied for it simply because I was like, okay, like this doesn't feel like something that I'm actually going to accomplish. Um, and I feel like that happens a lot in the marginalized spaces, especially when it comes to like school scholarships um, being able to receive those and, and so forth. So I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done uh, to kind of help marginalized groups. Yeah, I, I hear you when you say the the mental space, like you start to think of, of yourself that you you were not able to seek out more and how that trickles down even as adults. You know, it's very subtle, you know, right. but then of course, as you start to be more aware, more woke about it, you start to kind of get experience. Maybe some of that flush is like, wow, like I really wasn't supported. Yeah, I actually, I really like the example Rich gave. I didn't really think about the student loans and the mm-hmm. kind of like the the rules and almost like prison of adhering to 10 years of regular payments. And it's not just the, um, the regular payments on time, it's the amount, you know, right, that they structure, they tell you based on your income, uh, this is how much you can afford without really looking at like your lifestyle. Um, So I thought that was a really good example. As far as being a woman, and then in addition to being a woman of color, just historically, we're marginalized. For me, some examples that maybe I've experienced most recently is and connects to what I do professionally is health disparities. So with Black women, you know that right now we're dying at alarming rates compared to our counterparts. And I've seen that firsthand. So right now, you know, with my pregnancy, <laughs> it's much different than it was when I was younger. I had my first child when I was 21. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't really know much at the time, freshly out of nursing school and now kind of being in the game for about 15 years and now a nurse practitioner, I have that education behind me. So I'm really able to see when I go into the office, you know, I don't really go in telling them what I do because uh, I want to see, you know, what they're going to say, um, how they're going to provide care. And one example I give you, being a Black woman in general, I'm over the age of 35. That puts me at high risk for preeclampsia. So there was just things that I saw that weren't being suggested, that women voice that, that when they go into the office, there's things that they're not educated about. There are things that they're not told about, warning signs. And so in that space, we're marginalized. We're treated um, just like our white counterparts, which we can't be treated the same because statistics are very much so different. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been my experience and seeing, you know, that I've actually had to suggest, hey, should I be taking aspirin? Because this is something I already know. Okay, you should be putting me on aspirin. And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. Um, you can take it if you want to. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, and seeing that, you know, and being able to experience it, <clears throat> you know, was really difficult. The other example I would give is media representation or like societal representation of Black women, especially if you're successful. And, you know, it's these different narratives that they marginalize you into, whether that's, you know, you kind of have to skate on the thin line of, okay, I make too much money, um, so now I'm too independent, or I I don't want to make, you know, my other counterpart, my male counterpart feel threatened in that respect, or this angry, strong, independent, marginalized group that we're tend to be put in. And so that's been my firsthand experience with marginalization. But, you know, I could go on and on and on about the oh, different sure. groups. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like the example you gave, um, you know, because I have two daughters myself, and the first time I was pregnant was 23 versus having my toddler now um, at the age of 30, well, I don't want to tell y'all my age, but um, it's a huge difference. And being in the military and pregnant as a, a woman of color, there's so much that they didn't tell me. There's so much that I didn't know. And even though my pregnancy was perfect, my labor was a disaster. And again, it's because there's so much that I didn't know. And then this second time around, I did the research. I asked more questions. And because I knew so much more, it was so much harder to find OBGYN. I probably went through three or four before I, before I finally settled on one. And by then I was like four months pregnant. When you know so much and it's just you realize how you weren't you were marginalized, you don't want to settle, especially when it comes to like giving birth. So I, I really appreciate that example. It's funny you guys bring that up um, because I really thought about it took me back to my pregnancies and one of the major, you know, there's been a couple, <laughs> um, but I don't numb very well. And I'm very aware of that. Um, and so I always choose to be put to sleep for any type of procedure. You have to put me to sleep because I'm not going to numb or I'm not going to stay numb. Um, so I remember with my very first one, we were going through everything with this one, trying to hold on to her. And I was in the hospital and they said, okay, you have to have a cerclage. All right, that's great. I'll have a cerclage. He was like, well, you have to have an epidural. No, thank you. I'm not going to have an epidural. You're going to put me to sleep. Um, and the doctor said to me, no, that's not an option you have to have an epidural. And I was just absolutely in shambles because I'm like, that can't happen. That can't be. Luckily, I was able to get an anesthesiologist that was a man of color. And he said to me, listen, at the end of the day, we can only do what you allow us to do. And I think at that point was the turning point for me in my medical realm that really informed me that reality is they really kind of work for us. And so you can only do what I allow you to do. If I don't sign off on this, if I don't give you permission, you cannot, especially I'm, you know, fully aware. I can tell you what I need or what I don't need. Um, And, you know, so it came down to me really being like, all right, you have to put me to sleep. And it was 
so impactful that with my next child, um, over 15 months later, the anesthesiologist that I had was like, weren't you here about a year ago? Yep, that's me. You have to put me to sleep. Um, But even with the second pregnancy, I had to fight to be put to sleep for my C-section. The original doctor that was actually going, I chose to do my C-section, chose not to do so. Um, I went into my doctor's office and to my last appointment with him before my C-section, and he absolutely refused. He had actually informed another doctor that they would have to do it before he even had a conversation with me to understand my health history because where I go, you don't see just one doctor. You see all of them within the practice. So I hadn't been seeing him. I had been seeing my doctor that delivered my first daughter. And so he was just adamant and rude and really just kind of felt like I didn't know my body. I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't understand the risks. And I understood all of that. And I was willing to take those risks because I understood what needed to happen Because without taking those risks, if I didn't take those risks, there were bigger risks uh, um, for me. Um, And it was just one of those things of, you know, we really are marginalized in that medical space and not just in, you know, pregnancy health and women. It's just in that space as a whole, because now I'm dealing with it with my father being elderly and Black. And that's a whole nother ball game, you know, so that's another battle that I'm fighting, but I'm thankful for being able to, you know, fight that battle from my position first so I could understand it. So now that I can apply it to my dad. I find it quite interesting. The ideas that like I reflected on versus the ideas that, uh, both both of you reflected on was like, here's how the marginalization kind of affected the forwardness of my career in my life. And you both spoke about experiences that were about, you know what I mean? Like life and death experiences. So then that just goes back to see like the trauma experiences that you guys have is pretty, it's pretty significant. You know, I also noticed that each of you guys, you know, have mentioned how even though it's ones in a, with health and one's in career, you guys were really pushed to your own um, self-advocacy. I was going to say that. Because we hear talk um, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's and that's, that's what I took away from all the examples, like just how important it is to advocate for ourselves um, and to have people who look like us and spaces to help advocate for us as well, because, we're, you know, we're going to be in high school ages and we're a young 20 year old and not know. And so if I would have had someone in that Naval Hospital to, to push for me and to tell me what my options were and my labor could have went completely different. If Rich would have someone in his high school that would have pushed for him and told him what all his options was, because Rich is actually smart as shit. And if someone would have just like encouraged him to apply to those universities and prestigious, I'm sure his career would have looked completely different. Yeah. Um, I just looked up a few things. I know that like um, there's government contracts that go out every year. For example, if the government ever wants anything to get done, they hire private organizations to do it, right? And so they have this um, effort to kind of push uh, minority-owned businesses. So they have this one acronym that they refer to as women-owned businesses, and then they have one for minority-owned businesses. And kind of like if you own both, then that's even a, a better plus. But what they try to aim to do is give at least like 10% of those contracts 
to those minority or women-owned business. So based on like, if you're a woman owning a business, like you have higher advantage of receiving those contracts. But it goes to show that, you know, like only 10%, right? <laughs> somebody gets the bigger contract and they like, okay, I need to hire somebody to give them 10% of this work, right? And then still with that being pushed, we're only at a point where we're only seeing 4% of those like contracts being pushed down to those minority owned business. So it just shows you the marginalized spaces that we kind of created and how we're navigating in those spaces. I appreciate that uh, that aspect as well, too. Um, I might look into that for myself, actually. <laughs> so let's move into question two. Hopefully, uh, all of you listened to the episode on our four Ds of being diagnosed with a mental health illness. And one of those Ds is deviance. Um, it's a behavior that differs significantly from what is considered appropriate or typical for a social group. How has your behavior at school, home, work, um, or any social setting been considered a deviance? OMG. So I am a preacher's kid. My father's a preacher. My grandfather's a preacher. It just goes on. And as a preacher's kid, you are set in this box of this is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to be. This is how you're supposed to act. And I refuse. I refuse. I literally, my whole life has been a, everyone goes left, you go right. That has just been me. Um, and as a preacher's kid, I pushed to be even more of the opposite of what they said I was supposed to be. Um, you know, so I was always this very strong-headed, determined person to be different, to be outside of that box. Unfortunately, you know, it's caused a lot of attention, a lot of, you know, just extraness. Like, for instance, I also was a tomboy, still am in certain days. And I will never forget going on a trip. It was a church trip. We were all going and we, you know, we've all been really cool teenagers. And I was um, arm wrestling with one of the boys. That's just me. That's just what I was doing. And one of the ladies walked up to me and was like, why are you doing that? You're not supposed to be doing that. I'm going to call your father. First of all, you can call my dad. My dad is not the disciplinarian. Do what you want to do. That's fine. Um, and if you call my mom, she's going to tell you, so what? That's her. Um, but it's just one of those things, you know, being set in that box and that label being put on me from the beginning, really, because my father became a minister um, literally the same month that I was born. So that has been my life. You know, that label has been put on me and I have been determined to this day just to not be who they say I should be. Um, you know, I have a tattoo that says that, you know, I may have done the things they said I did, but I'm not who they say I am. Um, you know, I'm not the person that they say I should be. I am going to be who I'm going to be no matter what I've done. You know, Tiana, like, you know, I, I can fully relate to that. And what I like is that both your parents let you be you and supported you on that. I too grew up as a pastor's daughter. My grandfather was a pastor. My father's the oldest of 10 and all except two 
are not ministers or pastors. And one and of the two, one is married to a pastor. So strong line of it, except I didn't get quite get that kind of support. Um, it was, this is how you're supposed to act. And this is how you're supposed to behave. And what you talked about, Tiana, is forming your identity and knowing who you are. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. My mother really instilled that in us early down to really small things. She would allow us to pick our shoes. And people be like, well, why do you allow them to pick their clothes or to pick their shoes? And she said, because I don't have to wear them. They do. So why am I going to fight with them to wear something that I want them to wear? And they don't want to. It goes right back to me being a tomboy. I wore flannel shirts and jeans like all of high school. My mother hated it, but she would not say you know, this is how you're supposed to dress and you're supposed to dress like a girl. And nope, she she allowed us to be who we were going to be. That self-expression is so important, especially as you get older and become an adult and how we are supposed to behave, how we're supposed to act as, you know, people of color in certain environments. And when you come from your home space and get that kind of support that really, you know, has this ripple effect in all other areas of your life as you get older. You know, I'm curious, you know, Rich and Astasha, you know, what are you guys' thoughts on, on deviance? Yeah, I had to look it up because I'm like, what do I do that or have done that's deviant? <laughs> um, but not necessarily. I think I can relate to the both of you in terms of um, being raised in a household that may have certain beliefs or so, while in the church very much so. I'm, I'm the oldest of seven kids. Um, so I think birth order sometimes uh, has places expectations on you that you have to be a certain way, you have to do certain things. And, you know, uh, typically the oldest child is the high achiever or perfectionist. And so I think naturally I've had to fall into kind of that that role. Um, however, I think working against that, there's I'm a, I've been a wild child. So, you know, college, part of high school, I enjoyed dabbling and partying and stuff. So I think in that respect, there it was this expectation I had to be a certain way while not recognizing maybe teachers or uh, any type of uh, people of power when I was younger, not knowing the chaos that I was kind of going through at home, right? But there was still this expectation you have to be uh, this way. You're the oldest child. You got to be responsible. And so I think how I kind of rebelled against that was getting into trouble. I was getting into fights occasionally. And so it was almost like this Jekyll and Hyde, right? I had straight A's, but I'm skipping school. Or, um, you know, I'm playing sports, but I'm fighting a girl in the bathroom <laughs> in high school. And so it was just that, I think that rebellion. Um, and, you know, eventually I matured out of it. Um, but it was definitely this expectation on me to be a certain way. And I think for me, it was like, well, I'm not this, you know, perfect person. I want to do wild stuff. And so, you know, I can definitely relate to kind of Tiana and Kelly talking about this expectation that you have to be one way, um, but kind of wanting to have a voice and be able to explore and do different things that you want to do outside of that label that's put on you. Congratulations on growing out of it. I sure have it. <laughs> a bit. This looks a little different now. <laughs> Rich, you're, you're about to do something. 
My experience is, is pretty interesting because in the middle of like grade school, my parents moved from one area to another. So I grew up from like birth to about third grade. I lived in Bedstock and the school that I went to had majority black teachers or the teachers that I had in through, through that period to up to third grade were majority black teachers. And I felt like as a kid, I had a lot of energy. I might be hard to deal with. Don't get me wrong. Right. And, you know, I, I've been a teacher too as well. So I have that experience of dealing with probably a student that reminds me of myself. But I had teachers that knew how, how to handle someone like myself. And, um, I just remember when we moved and I did fourth grade and I moved to Mill Basin, um, in Brooklyn. I had teachers that didn't know one, how to connect with me and in a way that I needed to, or probably didn't spend the amount of time to under, kind of understand my needs and whatever the case may be. And that whole, like that, that experience for me was like terrible. It was just like, I just felt like the deviant kid who just didn't listen or whatever the case may be. And I had a lot of like, um, I was really like interested in learning. Like I've always been interested in learning and it's just like a, a period of like just needing to release energy at all times. Um, so that kind of really had a huge impact on the outcome of my life. Just being able to go from teachers I know how to, you know, deal with me to dealing with white teachers that just immediately deemed me as like the terrible or the bad student or the one that nobody that doesn't listen or whatever the case may be. Um, and teaching, I, I saw a lot of students and I saw myself and um, I used to think maybe like I was the problem, but I just realized that just bad teaching was the problem or um, bad, like not knowing how to deal or not deal, but not knowing how to, how to, um, how to work in our communities and how to how to how to be a part of our communities and and effectively be a part of our community and being a teacher and for our students. So I'm very mindful of how I handled my students and what I did for them, and how I cared for them, and how I showed them um, that you know what they were doing wasn't bad. It was just that they just had a lot of energy and they just needed love in the right places and so forth. So, yeah. You know, Rich, I really like what you share because, you know, culturally, you know, what's considered deviant, you know, when it comes to that deviance behavior, you know, it can seem wrong or mislabeled in one setting or one community when really it's a norm in another. And because right. you, Tiana, you know, Astasha, you guys had this space to where it was really seen for what it was, something that's just mm -hmm. at age appropriate or something that's just culturally appropriate, you know, you guys got the better responses with that support because mm -hmm. you're right, Rich, it could have been a, you're just a bad kid and put into a separate school and your life would have been in a different direction. You know, earlier you were mentioning mm -hmm. how um, certain opportunities weren't quite given to you and how you start to see yourself as, but thankfully there was an intervention taking place. You know, a lot of these little things, um, you know, from individuals who either look like us or understand us culturally is powerful. It can really change the course of someone's life and how they see themselves. And as they move forward away from that individual, how they show up in the next space, you know, and so, you know, being mindful of what someone else would consider deviant or wrong, right. and, you know, when you show up in a certain space. And I'm not just speaking to you guys. I'm speaking to our audience as a whole, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and how we show up. 
because, you know, people like, you know, like you saying, Tiana, you know, people are going to have their opinions and, and try to tell us who we are. And it's important that we stand firm in our own identities and our own community that we create, you know, as things are labeled deviant. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Perfectly said, Kelly. Um, I think uh, to take away from from Rich's experience um, when you when you're a child and you're put in these different settings, whether that's at home or at school, and they are categorizing your behavior as deviant and it's, it's not normal to them. And now you have slept with all these different labels of being the bad child, or now you have ADHD because you know that they love putting that out there because the child has more energy than others. And it, it just takes some simple redirection, maybe a little bit of one-on-one with that child just to get them to... Um, be able to manage their behaviors and manage their emotions. Cause some of that is a lot of just high emotions is really what it comes down to. Um, so I want to say to, you know, all of you and our audience that just to be careful with some of the labels we, we give our children because it, it can be internalized and carried out throughout the rest of their lives. Absolutely. And, and just taking that cultural lens of, Mm-hmm. what's being encouraged at home, you know, like, like maybe certain languages, certain behaviors, you know, it's like, this is what we do at home, but we don't do this when we leave, when we leave home. Not all kids get that message. <laughs> <laughs> they play that out everywhere they go. And so um, just taking that, that second thought, and I'm sure which um, you've probably had this thought too, you know, as a teacher at, at one point, you know, what is this kid's experience, you know, at home and if they brought it into the community or into into school, because it may be encouraged in one space or not being seen as uh, not OK, because this is their norm in another space or culturally. And I, honestly, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I know this isn't quite one of the questions, a sub question. Y'all, y'all, I'm deviating here, y'all. <laughs> I'm curious culturally, like what you guys, you know, th- was there anything culturally you guys had to um lean into or find like, you know what, this is part of my culture and, and it's being mislabeled as something. And this is what is taking place at home. Something on the lines of that, you know, um, I, I'm, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. Um, we were taught, you know, at some point that you don't say nigga outside of home, <laughs> something like that. And, and now I have a different mindset about that word, but just certain things culture that will can be considered okay in one space and not okay in another space, or you find comfort in it in that space and it's being mislabeled another. I think my um in my household, my mom did a pretty good job with like I never really heard her curse or anything like that. So the expectation was, you know, you don't curse, you don't say curse words, but I really, I just want to go back to what Rich said, because it made me think of my son. And then it made me think of um, the other students that he goes to school with. And um, I think for Black boys and Black men, certain behaviors are labeled as um, deviant. And I had to tell him, I had to have a discussion with my son the other day, because he had an issue with a particular student who uh, seems to continue to get suspended for different issues. And, you know, in my heart, I was thinking about him, like, I don't know what he experiences at home. Um, And I always try to think about like, these children weren't born this way, there's something that's going on, that's leading them to these behaviors. Um, And so I think, you know, I, I really appreciate that, appreciate that Rich had people that stepped into his life that could nurture and then also in turn allow him to have that same pr- perspective and go into a teaching space and also kind of have that mindset in the forefront of his brain 
then I'm going to nurture these students versus, you know, saying, oh, he's bad or, you know, he he's, you know, this and that or she. Um, and I, I just really appreciated that. That touched me. You know, like I said, having a son who um, we get into for men, they're not shown how to express their feelings often or even if you try to teach them what society is telling them is no you can't be emotional um and so that comes out in different ways you hear about these in dc specifically you hear about these you know 13 14 year old kids killing people right over silliness and i just think about like they haven't learned how to express their anger you know appropriately they haven't been nurtured appropriately so Yes, thanks, Dash. Um, I think we we need more male black teachers for sure. Um, I can only remember having one, and he was a math teacher too. I think it it, it does make a difference um, in the school system with with our with our children to have that black male figure who's not just yelling, shouting, and carrying on, but being able to mirror the type of behavior and emotional regulation that we want to see in them. And help not mislabel them because it, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, our young, you know, black boys are being mislabeled as young men or men in the media or someone's like, no, they're still a boy. They're still learning. Um, and I think that labeling is is very important because, again, Richie said something earlier about when society starts to um, label things, we start to internalize that. And so mm-hmm. little boys thinking that they grow and can handle certain things are labeled as bad. And I recall that as a child. You know, I remember my father distinctly not really calling me a bad kid or anything like that, but just being clear that it was my behaviors that needed to be corrected. And 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 it helped me make sure how I, I look, y'all, mm-hmm. Stasia, Tiana, I was I was fighting, too. I was I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing. But thankfully, I wasn't being mislabeled as this bad kid. You know, it was like, hell, your behaviors are not good. And so if, if we mm-hmm. can get you know, our, our, our youth to understand that their behavior or their choices is something that needs to be corrected and to get someone that looks like them of the same gender or, or race or culture that can understand that and make that connection. It can really have a, a beautiful effect. Yeah. yeah. And this is like, for me, this is like huge emphasis on like, as a teacher, there's this huge emphasis on like channeling a student's energy. Right. And like, uh, if I see that, like, a student may have like a positive mindset, right? And there's a lot of energy there, then figure out a way to kind of channel that energy into the right places, right? So we can, as teachers, we can figure out a way to kind of just burn a student's energy out, right? One of the things that I used to do as a teacher was I knew a kid was coming with a high level of energy. Um, and also they may come in my classroom and not really feel successful that day, right? Cause maybe that content might be challenging for them or they might have struggled the day before. So I used to send kids to run to my mailbox to grab things out of the mailbox before class even started to kind of just like make them run, channel, get that energy out feel like they accomplished something for me. So they feel successful. And then like coming into my class, they feel like, all right, I'm already on a good tip versus like, if you walk into a classroom and they're like, yo, um, my name is Mr. Spence. So they'd be like, yo, Mr. Spence is already on me today. Like, and they just don't feel successful in that space. And then I would also say, we we mentioned like having uh, more teachers in our classrooms for our black children. And we also need a lot of black leaders in those schools as well, 
because I remember one of the things that one of um, like a black assistant principal pointed out to me. He was like, I sat in your classroom for an hour and I realized that you treat girl students differently than you treat some of your male students or your boy students. And um, him being able to point that out to me was made was allowing me to see some of my unseen biases in my own classroom. And that might have that played a huge role on how I reflected with every lesson that I taught from there on. Did you maintain that difference or did you start to approach it more strategically? Yeah, you 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 start to learn like you don't see that first. Right. There's some things that like I used to film myself, too, as well as a teacher. And there's some things that you don't realize you're doing until you actually see it in film. So when somebody says that to you and you actually watch yourself see those discrepancies on film and you're like, oh, yeah, I do treat X students differently than I treat Y students. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, So. You get to see that and then you get to um, spend time correcting your behavior. As teachers, you have behaviors too. There's things that you do unbiasedly just like your students do. They don't, they don't do these things on purpose, right? There's things that you do unbiasedly that you need to spend time correcting. I like that. That willingness to, yeah. to, to grow, to be flexible. I mean, that really shows the genuine, you know, uh, passion and care. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just being in the space is not enough. Being in the space and also doing the work. Mm-hmm. I think you're being mindful and being receptive um, to your assistant principal and his constructive criticism. And then, like you said, doing the work. You know, I can tell you're a great teacher. We also mentioned with it, you're welcome, <laughs> with it starting at home. Um, I know Stash was thinking about her her son's classmate and wondering what his, his home was like. And that leads to our, our next question. Can you describe two or three helpful or, or unhelpful habits you adopted from your upbringing? And what was your, your upbringing like as well, culturally? I'd say for me, so growing up, I kind of, I'd say I had a half and half experience. So up until about the age of eight or nine or so, you know, I had that pretty stable, you know, just around all my family. We all lived in, I grew up in Flint, Michigan. And so, you know, it was the traditions of for all the holidays were at my great grandmother's house always gathering. I was always around my cousins or grandparents all the time. And then there became a a shift around the age of eight or so. Um, My mom had married someone that I don't particularly think was great for her. And that then caused a huge shift that went from a ton of stability. Even though my mom was a single mom, I had stability. I had family that was around me. Um, But once that marriage happened, that led to about eight years or so of instability. Um, It was very transient, moving a lot state to state. Um, Homelessness was definitely very prevalent during that time frame. So from about nine to age 16, it was just very up and down. The household was very chaotic as well. Through that, though, I know you had asked to identify some unhelpful and helpful habits. And so I think through that, I've been able to see, um, you know, the light uh, or what I learned from that major shift in my childhood. But one of those things was adaptability. And so, you know, I'm often able to be put in a setting where I can adapt and quickly feel 
okay in that setting, whether it's the, you know, varying people, varying settings, and then the independence. I did have to learn to become very independent in a sense that, you know, nothing to take away from my mother. She did everything that she could with what she had, but a lot of times our roles were very much so reversed. You know, I think she was having her own struggles at that time, which required me as the oldest child to kind of step up in a way that placed responsibility on me that, you know, a child shouldn't have, unfortunately. And so with that, I think came the independence that I have right now, which is a benefit and sometimes to my detriment as well, because I often have an outlook of, well, I can do it on my own and I often don't want people to help me because of uh, going into maybe the third habit of having difficulty sometimes with deeper connections. So I can easily make friends really well. I think I struggle with that deep connection at times. And I think that's because it's just like, oh, you know, uh, being so transient at during your formative years, it caused me to be in a space where I got used to making friends over and over. And I got used to the instability and the lack of depth that was being allowed in those friendships or whatnot. And so I think the habits that I've formed are unhelpful in one aspect, but also can be uh, helpful as well. So that was my experience. It was interesting to hear, Sasha, when it, when you talked about your independence. Um, I am also the oldest. My mother has two biological children and an additional three that she kind of took on and, and adopted. So there are a total of five of us, but I'm still the oldest. For me, independence was a very big thing as well. It could be a double-edged sword because for me, I am, you know, very strong-headed, very independent and going to do anything, you know, that I want to do, no matter if I have help or not. But in my later years, it has become a hindrance in the sense of I do struggle with asking for help. I do struggle with even identifying where I need help because it's always I can do it. I can figure it out. I will get it done. But being the oldest and I also, you know, really kind of kicked up some dust on me there <laughs> Um until the age of 13, I kind of had my own instability. Um, my mom and dad are currently still married for a moment. Um, another story. <laughs> but for the first 13 years of my life, my parents were, you know, on and off. They're married, but they were on and off. And we did a lot of moving within the, the city that we lived in for Buffalo, New York. Um, but we did a lot of moving because of their instability. And I, too, you know, just got used to moving from school to school and different, you know, friends. And, you know, so that just became normal. Um, we relocated when I was 13 to Maryland. And that's when we finally got bit more of stability. And I tell people all the time that that's when my parents became stable with each other, you know, so I thought until I got older anyway, but at least that's when it started to look stable for me. Um, but that independence, you know, that is a struggle. People say, you know, they're very independent. They can do anything that also hurts in a sense of people feel like you can do anything. You're okay, that you don't need help 
I look at my situation of my little sister. She gets all the help in the world. Everyone is always there to help her and always there to give her things and do things for her. In situations where I need help, there's no one there because everyone sees this very independent woman that has always done it, that has been working since she could work, that has been taking care of herself. Unfortunately, you know, when people say that's a very independent person, um, it's always looked at on the positive side, but it's not looked at on what can be the negative or the hardships when it comes to being an independent person. Absolutely. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rich. The only thing for me that was that I dealt with a lot was like getting the right feedback. Like I saw my what my parents have done and my mom and dad were pretty good together and everything kind of went kind of well. For me, the place where I struggled at the most was uh, receiving the right feedback on like what I was doing right, what I was doing wrong. And I, I didn't. I always looked at myself as like, oh, you're not doing this right. You're not doing that right. And it, it kind of came from not knowing what was right or, or wrong. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, good behaviors and bad behaviors. But I, I'm just thinking about from a perspective of, you know, like whether that was like sports or uh, whether that was my schoolwork or whatever the case may be, just that direction of knowing like, hey, continue to stare this way or don't stare that way. So just more direction, right from wrong. So did you have too much freedom and not enough guidance almost? It was one of those. I remember my mom used to have this saying when I was growing up when it came to curfews, oh, just let your conscience be your guide. I'm like, okay, <laughs> see you at three, you know? <laughs> Bold statement to say to a kid. <laughs> so was it like, is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah, I, I had a lot of freedom growing up. Like, I, I kind of steered myself in, you know, like, whatever direction I kind of wanted to. I always figured myself to be, like, a good person. So I kind of know the right things to do versus, you know, the wrong things to do. Um, but I also made some poor decisions that, like, if I had the right guidance on or things, things could have been a little bit differently. Is that one of the habits that you're learning to still cultivate um, when it comes to, you know, from your upbringing, just that encouragement to just kind of like use your own intuition and trial and error. Right. And then also, too, I think it came from like um, structure because I was kind of in my own space and kind of doing my own thing. And I never created a form of structure. So when I got into professional environments, that was a tough space to be in. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example. It's like now, even as a 32-year-old adult, I'm just like, come on, Rich, create structures, procedures, routines that you can execute on a daily basis to kind of make yourself more accomplished, not accomplished, but have more accomplishment in your days versus just going with the flow, which is like what I've done as a child. I see. So in your childhood, there was a lot of freedom. And then as it, it kind of played against you when you needed to start to create structure for yourself, it ended up being a challenge for you. Um, exactly. And then that's and that, that's not an uncommon, you know, we're learning how to create structure and discipline for ourselves because oftentimes the kids is given to us. Um, and, you know, some of us and I, I do mean this, some of us are given the luxury to just be a kid. Correct. And I have to think about those things. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. And so at some point it comes along, it's like, all right, now you hit this point where you got to learn how to create that discipline for yourself. Sometimes it can happen with homework. Find the time to get your homework done. 
you know, prioritize when you need things for your sport, if that's given. But, you know, you know, as Dr. kind of makes me think how at some point it got turned for you where you had to take on that um, parental role or that more more responsibility. That means you must have had to create structure for your for your not just for yourself, but for your family, too, at an early age. It's a very different experience. Absolutely. Yeah, I was just about to say that I had to when you were talking about like sports and things like that. I had to develop that structure. So now as I reflect on my own children, I'm like on on them like crazy, even though I didn't particularly receive that. I had to create it in order to, I think, get myself to the path that I wanted to be um, on. I knew I wanted to get out of the environment that I was in. And so I think I recognized something clicked like, you know, probably sophomore year, junior year. And I'm like, I need to get my act together, you know, with homework, with sports, with all these different things in order to live the lifestyle that I want to live eventually. Um, And I'll say for Rich, he was saying in regards to it showing up in the career space, I see that, especially now being in a director role when I was a new director Um, Certain things, you know, in terms of organization was lacking on my end because I I never saw that. I never saw, you know, I saw the scattered papers in the household and, oh, we can't find, you know, a particular document. There wasn't, you know, a lot of organization. And, and and, you know, some people aren't inherently organized. Some people learn those habits. And so I think um, being in that role, it had to push me to become set up certain systems to start to be organized, to be able to do my job well. Um, And even I would say, even in my household right now, I watch those, you know, Instagram and TikTok (laughs) videos of, you know, these women that have these like super organized ass kitchen drawers and bathrooms and all this stuff. And then I start feeling bad about myself. And I'm like, well, I'm just not organized. And you know what? I had to like change that thought. And it was like, okay, well, no, I didn't grow up around that, but I can develop that. Right. And so I started making a plan to go through each room and really start to be like, okay, this is the person that I want to be. It's going to be easier for me, especially with kids. Um, And this is what I want to develop. So if you come to my house now, my bathroom is like super organized. I have, I'm like (laughs) so happy and proud about it because it has a space literally for everything. So my kitchen is my next, my next uh, job. It's funny um, because I have deemed myself an aesthetics girly. I'm getting there, you know, because I enjoy organization because it goes back to that deviant behavior of I was raised one way, but I choose to be the complete opposite. Um, So interestingly enough, I live next door to my parents. Um, So you literally can step out of my house and into theirs. And it's a completely different space. And you would think, okay, she's the oldest. She lived the longest in, you know, under her parents because I did not move away from my parents until how long have I been here? Uh, four years ago, I was married and everything. Lived with my don't judge me. <laughs> um, this is know, a no judgment husband, zone. <laughs> lived with my parents because we had the goal of being able to buy our own home. Um, so my parents were gracious enough to be able to allow us to do that and to work up to that. And then they didn't go far. 
<laughs> but it is a complete opposite of, you know, my house is very structured. You know, my girls have bedtimes. There's a lot of things that I have structure on. And you go to my mom's house where my sister also lives with her three children. And there's none of that. It is a complete opposite. But my mom was kind of in the middle of, we had some structure, but not a lot because of the instability in the first 13 years of my life, she wasn't able to give us that structure. And for me, I thrive off of structure, you know? So once again, going back to, I'm going to be an aesthetic girly too. I have this long list of all my glass jars and all the cute little things to organize my kitchen as well. My kitchen is first because I spend so much time in it. So <laughs> Uh, Tiana, we're going to have a like a little discussion, a little powwow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Taking pride and getting getting uh, certain parts of the house nice and uh, clean and, and, and purdy. <laughs> you know, one thing I, I, I hear, you know, and all that you guys are, are sharing is that mm-hmm. wherever you guys started, you guys took charge in what you wanted to know, learn for yourself and created the person you want to be and to continue to be effective or efficient and successful in any way that looks, whether it's career or as your role as a parent or just, you know, your immediate space. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about as you guys were sharing is that some of the frustrations or even stigmas about individuals in Black community or for people of color or for Black women or the strong Black woman concept, you know, of what that is like. For men who may have certain comments or thoughts about the strong, independent Black woman and what that can mean, not realizing that, you know, in, in some ways we do end up being products of our environment, okay? It's not just because, you know, we're angry or upset. It's we're trying to figure this out too. <laughs> you know, uh, which kind of leads into our, our last questions about some of the things, you know, which ones are you guys still trying to learn as far as um, habits and which ones are you still unlearning? And, you know, what's that process look like for you guys? Biggest habit I'm attempting to learn is delegation, you know, because also being in management, a lot of my career, I've just taken on everything and being like, okay, I can do it. I can get it done. You know, so being a business owner, it's once again coming back to I can do it, I can get it done instead of looking for others that can do it for me. Um, So really being able to delegate those things. I think the biggest thing that has pushed me to learn delegation or to be more open to delegating things is two under two. These little ones got me running around in circles. Um, So it's like, okay, you can't do it all by yourself because something's going to lack and you refuse to allow taking care of your children to lack and you don't want your business to lack. So what are you going to delegate? So you're not going to delegate your parenting. So that means you're going to have to delegate some things when it comes to your business. Um, So for me, it is really learning how to delegate and, and outsource you know, different things because I'm one of those, why pay for something that I can do for myself? But the reason is because yes, you can do it for yourself. However, that means something else is going to lack, you know? So really just owning the fact that I can't do everything by myself. I can still be independent and a strong, independent woman without needing to do everything by myself. 
I like it, redefining it. Yeah, I agree. I would say the same thing, trying to unlearn that. I mean, I think it definitely is a testament to your leadership prowess when you can delegate tasks effectively and empower the people that are directly reporting to you. I think it really shows your ability to be that true leader and not feel like you have to do everything all the time. So I would say that's something I'm unlearning as well. In addition to going back to what I said about the um, deeper connections, um, I think being so transient, like I said, having many acquaintances, but a lack of maybe those deeper rooted relationships. And I take ownership in my part and not fostering those relationships. And so I think now I've started to work on that, whether that's being in therapy or making sure I'm really engaging with the people that I really care about and love on a deeper level. That's, I think, a habit that I'm trying to um, undo because I have had, thankfully, I have friends in my corner who have expressed the, you know, the feeling or the ability to observe maybe my lack of dis- my disconnect sometimes um, in relationships because I'm sometimes, you know, in my own world and Um, so those definitely are the two things that are important for me to unlearn and do better. Again, I think it just comes back to me in in the form of structure and just like creating a space where I can kind of just continue to be consistent. I think when, like currently now I work for myself and before as a teacher, like those structures and those time slots and those spaces were kind of created for me. So I did a lot of things for work, but I didn't do a lot of things for myself um, because I didn't have the self structure, the, the structure that I had that I had to force upon myself. And now that work and myself is something that I have to create structures for without any outside kind of influence, I kind of create spaces and created a flow that that works for me. So. And then again, like there's still a lot of improvement that I can do that I haven't reached yet. So it sounds like you're still learning how to minimize the distraction and help keep yourself focused. My favorite word, boundaries. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like I have friends who don't have any social media on their phone or you can't call them between certain times. Like, so now I've created a space where I wake up at you know, 6.30 in the morning. And from 6.30 to 9 is me sitting behind my computer and sending out all the emails, doing all the work I need to do. Anything that comes after 9 o'clock is going to happen tomorrow. It's not happening today. <laughs> so that's kind of like, is, is if it's going to be done, it's going to be done between 6 to 9 the next day. So that's just kind of the space that I created for myself because I found myself working until, or just like, I'm just going in this flow that's completely unorganized and it leads to burnout. It leads to to bad relationships. It leads to not taking care of yourself in the way that you should. And then you're always like self-reflected in a way that's not positive. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. As you, as all three of you guys were talking about what you guys are still working on for yourselves, um, delegating and, you know, stepping outside your comfort zone, deepening those connections and creating more of those boundaries. It definitely one it can be an, an uncomfortable experience, but um, a learning process, a day to day thing, um, and it, it's especially if you've gotten used to doing things a certain way. So you know, it is just yeah. you have to know what that process looks like because it is a process. Yeah, because you know, just listening to 
all of you and the different questions we asked and the topics that we we touched on. Um, I've noticed that having the advocacy there, whether that's self-advocacy or advocacy for one another um, comes up and be able to have that structure and what that looks like from childhood into adulthood is important. And I also um, noticed within even all of that, just the, the meanings that we create with all those different topics and within those experiences, the meanings we create can be um, positive and empowering, or they can be um, negative and, and maladaptive in ways. And as we continue to grow and to go into adulthood and become more aware of these things, it helps us to improve and be more productive and have those healthier habits that we are looking for to be successful tax-paying adults. <laughs> Absolutely. Cause you know, you know, we're always growing and learning something new about ourselves, you know. Um, you know, Rich, like you said, when you were recording yourself in the classroom, there was things about yourself that you learned that you were able to grow from. And so as you guys, you know, continue to work through those process, you learn more about yourself what you're mm-hmm. capable of doing and how you can do it and being creative. And like you said, Tosh, using that meaning making. Mm-hmm. And they, whatever and maladaptive behaviors get developed, you know that you have the agency to change it. And I hope all of you and all of our listeners, as you continue to go on this journey of self-awareness and being more mindful of self, um, that you are also giving yourself grace as you're uncovering all your mistakes and things you could have done differently or better. We don't know all the things. We have to go through these experiences first to get the tools and knowledge that we need. So to continue to give yourself grace as you are unlearning and learning new, healthier patterns of behavior. So we, uh, Kelly and I, definitely thank you for coming on today and joining us and taking time out of your busy days, motherhood and real estating and whatnot. I just call it all. Thank you for taking time for um, out of adulting, (laughs) (laughs) just a regular old adulting. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me into your space. Like, I really appreciate it. I I love the previous episodes. Every time I listened to an episode, I kind of called Tosh and was like reflecting. It was like, hey, I never even thought about this in this manner or thought about like how this is impacting my life and stuff like that. You ever like have, you ever have like a deep thought in, in your mind that you've never been able to like kind of express. And then you find out that there's research behind this or that there's a whole community around that space. And he was like, damn, I was living within my own thoughts. And there are other people out there that are sharing the same thoughts and the same feelings and the same experiences. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you guys for sharing those. Yeah, I appreciate it. You're most welcome. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, I'm so proud of you, Tosh and Kelly. Um, But definitely, Tosh, I told you when you had let me know that you had started uh, this podcast, um, how proud I am of you and inspiring And I think like Rich was saying, I'm like a fat geek. So when I was listening to the first episode, I think I had text Tosh about, um, I think it was the Dr. Beck fact about Mm. depressed people want to be depressed. And so I just thought that was really interesting. So continue to provide this great information to the community, um, continue to bring people into these spaces. I love, you know, having these types of conversations and really being able to see how we're all interconnected in some way yeah. mm-hmm. um, 
So just appreciate you all. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for having me. You know, I tend to look at myself as, um, you know, I just stay home, I clean baby butts. <laughs> you know, I don't have much to offer to the community. Um, you know, so it's big, you know, help for me, if nothing else. So I want to thank you guys for that. Absolutely. That's the job, Tiana. Wiping butts, baby butts. That's the whole job. It's a couple of jobs. It's a big help to the community, okay? We don't want no dirty dirty butts out there. Y'all pray for me. 15, well, 10 to 15 years and not having a baby butt to wipe. I'm about to do it all over again. Listen, I wanted to ask about that. I was like, I need. Just pray. Just pray for me. Uh, Yes. Okay. Thanks, you all. Continue to listen. Be informed. Be supported. Be empowered.